0: Oh, and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, Corporate asked him to find the difference between the AFR set symbol and the Midnight Hunt set symbol, and he told them it's the same picture. It's Matt Morgan.
1: You know, whenever I go visit Spain, I try to use the word mucho a lot, and it really means a lot to them. I <laughs> apt Matt. That's a that's
0: very literally true. I absolutely quite
1: love. literally means a lot to them.
0: Indeed. Up next, he just got done venturing into the lost minds of Fan Delver of Secrets. That's Dana Roach. Uh Joey, what do you call the out-of-control food truck that killed Edgar Markov? Um I I congratulate it. I know that. But, but what do you call it? Buffet the Vampire Slayer. Dang it. Oh, <laughs> that got me so good. I y y'all that can see my facial expression right now, y'all got to that was mm. Excellent, Dana. That's probably my favorite joke you've ever told. That's just that's that's sad. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Low bar here on the podcast. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, what is it that we're
1: talking about in this week's episode? This week, we're going to talk about some strategies that we use to help cut down those last few cards in every deck. You know, we're only allowed to play 100 cards in a deck. um, So we're going to talk about the ways that we do that ourselves. Oh, yeah. It's so hard to get
0: from, like those 104 cards down to the final hundred. It's very, very difficult. So we want to talk about some of our techniques that we use when we are brewing to finally get down to a playable 100 should be a whole bunch of fun. Real quick, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the command zone who handle the post-production work on our podcast here. And we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. The Idiot
2: Trackcast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, the vampire and werewolf tribal to every other online shop's (laughs) Beeble list. (laughs) Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the
1: site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com edhretcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. We have patron exclusive content every single month. It's definitely a great way to support us. And you can do so over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. We even have a very special tier where we thank someone each and every week just for supporting us. And this week, we want to give a very special shout out to Jalen Stanley. So Jalen, thank you so much for all of your support. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you so,
0: so much. Jalen means the word to us. All right. Let's get into our main topic, fellas. We are talking about how to make those final cuts. Dana, I remember on a recent episode, you talked about an example of like sitting down just like a had an hour or two for an evening. You've got, I think you even said you've like got a glass of gin or something like that. And you're looking <laughs> at making, you know, going down the 104 cards down to a final hundred. And after two hours, you end up with 108 cards instead of 100. So I think it's safe to say that you and we all agree that this is a very difficult part of deck building is like getting those final cuts down.
2: It is and and it gets harder every time they release a new set filled with good cards. Like the the choices just become more and more difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not an easy task cutting down to 100. It never has been and it's just getting worse as every year passes by.
0: I feel that. Matt, is this also a pretty difficult thing for you or is it like, no, I'm just going to slam 100 together and get playing. Like how do you feel about those final cuts?
1: Um, Well, When you stop just paying attention to preview seasons like I have just lately, it's just so hard to keep up with. Um, It's not too hard with all the new cards, but with all the older cards, it still is difficult. Um, Even if you haven't been paying attention and living under a rock like I have, um, there's still, yeah, there's still just a huge, massive card pool. It's, you know, one of the biggest formats as far as possible cards goes. Um, So, yeah, it's always difficult just from the sheer amount of choices and options you have.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I will note, at least for me, making that cut from like 112 or 114 or whatever down to 105 is where it's really challenging um, because once I get down to like 104, 103 or whatever it is, I just tend to indiscriminately kind of make cuts um, because for me personally – I really need to get reps of the deck before I kind of, of know what's not there. So I, at that point, I just want to get things, get it into play shape. And then I will worry about, yeah, that was a bad cut. I should have left it in and I will find room for it later on. But I just want to get reps in at that point. So I'm just going to slash some things out of the deck. It's when I'm sitting at 112 and I need to get it down to that point where I can just indiscriminately pop a few cards out.
0: That's where things for me are really challenging. This this explains why you don't run any basic lands. Yeah, probably, probably, yeah. You're just like don't it out of list at random. I got to cut five cards. Soul Ring, it's gone. <laughs> Cultivate, it's out. <laughs> yeah. Like now, I, now I feel like I finally understand you. For for me though, I totally feel like it's the opposite. I like the journey from 120 cards to like 103 cards that feels a lot easier to me but those last three cuts those are the ones that agonize those are the ones that i just like i can't i spend literally half an hour on a single card where i'm just like do i do it? do i not do it like so that that is totally where for me the sweet spot of difficulty is located but i mean regardless we certainly all agree that cutting cards is a little bit tough so let's get into some of the lessons that we use some of the mantras that we use some of maybe the questions that we ask ourselves when we're in those positions how do we slim down to the final 100 matt start us off with our first lesson technique whatever it is what is a thing that is useful to help us get down to 100 cards
1: Well, I mean, the first thing that we kind of ask, and we mention it oftentimes on the podcast too is, is a card kind of a win more card? Or is it a card that only is really working well in the best case scenarios for it? it, it, or another way to kind of approach it is, is this card good at all phases of game or is it only good when things are already going really well? Is it going to help me catch up or do I already have to be you know, dominating the game for this card to be, really be good? That's a question um, a lot of people, I think, should probably be asking themselves more often about a lot of cards.
0: Oh yeah, on a previous episode we've talked about cards that are like universal in their application. That's a huge thing for me for sure. But if a card is really only good when we're already doing good and it won't help me like catch back up like you said, that does become like kind of a sign, but it's difficult to spot them for sure when you are you don't have reps in with the deck, Dana, like you said. I think the most specific example I've been able to nail down of like my previous deck building and cutting experiences is that I used to play Hydra's Growth in my Rehan and Ishai plus one counters deck. Hydra's Growth doubles the number of plus one counters on your creatures every turn, which is awesome. But in that deck, I had so many other ways of like naturally getting counters that that card kind of amplified what was already an efficient enough board State that I kind of found that isn't what my deck needs extra help with. The rest of the deck is kind of getting enough of the counters. So this one, while cool, it's like really, really cool. It turned out for my particular build to just be a little bit superfluous.
2: Well, and and these kind of cards um, also make good cuts because of that thing you just mentioned, Joey, Um, because you're not going to know maybe whether or not they are good in your deck until you actually get the reps in. It makes for an easy cut early on to just get to that point where you can make reps because maybe you will find out in your particular deck, like once you've grounded out and played a dozen games or like, Oh, very often I am in a position where Hydrus growth will be good in my deck, in, in mm-hmm. my build, in my meta, whatever. Um, and then you can figure it out then. But like sometimes you just have to get to that point before you realize it. So why not make that cut early on so you can get to that point and then just get a feel for, am I going to want this in my hand when I'm at that point in the game? You, you can just do that in your head. It doesn't need to be in the deck. And then and then try it out later on. So it makes for a good cut for a couple of reasons, both because of, you know it's best case scenario and because you can just kind of mentally figure it out later on when you're in the game.
1: Yeah, a really good example of a card that I've... I've wanted to play, but I just, I always end up cutting it because it only really works when I'm doing well as second harvest. Um, It's a great green instant that doubles the amount of counter amount of tokens that I have. Mm. But also like you have to have a pretty good amount of tokens on the battlefield in order to double an amount worth doubling. If you only have two out there, you're spending four mana to get two tokens. That's not that great of a rate. So that's a card for me. It's just always fallen into this category of it's only good when things are already going well. Uh, it, it's not never really going to get me out from, you know, you know, a behind position. So it definitely feels like a win more card. And that's a card I just I've I've cut from so many decks.
0: Well, it's so interesting. I expect that there are a lot of token players out there who have amazing stories with that card. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's probably like a thing you're acknowledging there about a play style difference as well. The way that you are playing the decks of yours that contain tokens is going to be slightly different the way that you've personally approached that. Whereas for other people, that might not feel like a win-more card at all. I mean, heck, it kind of feels like a budget doubling season because who's got the $50 for the doubling season? So there's like arguments on both sides for any specific example that we bring up here. So it also that has this huge thing of personal playstyle that's coming into this as well. There are no objective cards in this scenario because commander is very much a win more type of format. There are win more cards here that we play here that do help us push to the final like it that becomes lethal on the board. So for some players that might work, but as you noted in your experience, you haven't needed it.
1: Yeah, haven't needed it and just sometimes like you said Joey, it's a personal preference. Um right. I haven't had great experiences with it. Other people have whereas um I've had great experience with Triumph of the Hordes, you know, doing the Infect thing. Like that's a card I have had great success with and other people maybe haven't. Like It, it all comes down to what is the you know the type of deck you're trying to build? How are you trying to win? Um, and is it falling into that? And it's just, man, mm-hmm. then we talk about personal preferences all the time. Like if I was trying to play Dana Sphinx tribal deck, um, I would bumble through a lot of turns and I just wouldn't play it as well. But Dana knows more about the deck. That's just how he likes to play the game. And that's why he has probably well, not probably, much better, definitely concrete suggestions for that deck.
0: Another win more example here that's uh, coming to my mind is also, Dana, in past episodes, you've challenged cards like Bread for the Hunt, which draws you cards if you hit enemy players with creatures that have plus one, plus one counters on them. And you've kind of challenged that one as a, well, you could just play a regular draw spell and you'll probably, it will be more reliable in more stages of the game and you don't need to have creatures that you've already pumped up in order for the card to work out for you. So that strikes me as another potential example of like, this card is kind of only serving me well when I'm already doing well.
2: Yeah, it's it's a card where in order to function, A, B, and C have to already happen versus running a card that just functions without worrying about C or B or A. Right? Like you, right. you just
0: get your effect. Exactly. So yeah, those are the types of things to absolutely look for, especially when you're trying to slim down all the way down to 100. This can be an easy thing to identify. Sometimes there's like this card. Doesn't help me in all corners of the game, and I probably want a very well-rounded card a whole lot of the time. So that can be a guiding uh, principle there. Dana, what is another guiding principle that might help you slim down a little bit more, too? Um, Looking at your
2: deck's weak spot, um, and are you covering for that weakness... Or are you maybe over committing to that weakness? Um, an example would be, you know, black doesn't deal with artifact or enchantment removal directly in black very easily. But there's colorless solutions that tend to cost a lot of mana. Um, is it worth running those colorless
0: solutions? And are maybe are you running too many of them? Right. There's like that seven mana exile target permanent spell. And it's like, yeah, that can get rid of an enchantment. But it's also seven mana.
2: And there are some situations where it is worth running those things to deal with it. But, um, you know, that's that's also a thing that you can, can decide later, too, to a degree, right? Get into that, that game, play five or six games and be like, I, I am struggling dealing with removing people's enchantments. So I might just need to put something in here to handle it, even if I'm spending too much mana. Or you'll decide, I, I'm just, I don't need that. I found that after five games... I'm doing just fine without having something in there. So, Mm -hmm. great. I can just proceed forward from that point on.
1: Yeah, sometimes, I mean, I I know recently we talked about Feed the Swarm on this challenge of stats. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't want to play it just because, like, sometimes you don't even care about enchantments in mono black. Like, you can just find other ways to get around it. And depending on the deck, maybe sometimes you can't get around that. So, like, you have to play some sort of backup plan. Um, There's always going to be just corner case scenarios where you're going to want to consider many different options. And it just... Yeah, like we said, do you want to commit to overcoming this weakness or in the big picture, should you care and do you need to address it at all? Well, and specifically,
0: the Feed this Swarm challenge that I had on a recent episode was for decks that also contain green or white, where it's like, that weakness is already covered, so I don't need this other card. That's a thing that I can definitely chop, because the flexibility of the sorcery speed option that makes me lose life is not as good as the other stuff I could already be playing instead. So that's not covering the weakness in the way that I would need to. So that can be another way to help identify one of those types of cuts. So moving on to another point now this is one that I've been especially a little bit eager to uh, get to. You all can probably hear it in my voice. This is like interdeck dependence, basically, where I have to be very honest with myself and ask, am I only including card X because card Y is also in the deck? And how much value am I really getting out of a scenario where both of those cards are in play? Because if I only draw card X and I don't draw card Y and X isn't very good on its own, that might be a thing that I need to cut. Like, I'm not talking about combos here, where it's like, you know, Machaeus and and if you get both of those in play, you just automatically win the game. I'm not even talking about those. I'm talking about a card like Academy Manufacturer, for example, which triples up the tokens that you make. If you make food, treasure, or clues, it makes you one of each. Well, if I'm trying to get Academy Manufacturer to work in my 99, but I've only got like two other cards that make a treasure or a clue or something— how often am I really going to see both of those cards in play at the same time? I don't think it will be that often. So I probably need to, as much as I love Academy Manufacturer, cut it out of the cards I'm considering.
2: Uh, this is a thing that comes up a lot of times, I think, when when people are looking at decks and making suggestions, too. They're like, well, you're running this card. It's so fine you run this card. Well, because <laughs> it's, a, it's dead if I don't have the first one out and the first one isn't in the command zone. I'm not guaranteed to see it, um, you know. I think that's a thing. Um, sometimes you get from combo players too, where like they they really want to run combo, and I totally get that. But the the best combos are ones where both halves of the combo are good on unto themselves. I think that's right. one of the reason Sanguine Bond and Exquisite Blood are so popular. Not only does it win you the game, those are both just fantastic cards by themselves. Like you don't need something else to make those good, and you win the game if you have both out. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely an easy thing to cut, I think, is if you're looking at those cards that aren't like blood bond, where both halves aren't good on their own, that makes a very easy cut, because you can look at the card and just say, listen, this is just not going to do me any good unless I have the other half out. So mm. why am I worrying about it right now?
1: yeah a good way to put this you know when, when i was playing a lot of 60 card formats we would talk about you know oh i'm playing the uh, collected company deck so i'm running some sort of, of hand disruption package um as we would consider just yeah, you know, we're running this package to do hand disruption or to do toolbox effects and so they're only really good because you have a lot of different access to different things because they synergize well with each other in commander it's the same thing are, are you playing something very specific uh, because you think it's generally good or is it only really good when it's synergizing with another card. Like we talk about the Isochron Scepter combo with Dramatic Reversal. Like Dramatic Reversal isn't really that good of a card on its own. Like, yes, it has very, very narrow corner case, you know, applications, but Obviously it's well known because Isochron Scepter and it goes infinite with a soul Ring. um, You get all sorts of just infinite whatever's you need. Uh, But there's all sorts of different reasons that you would be maybe considering other cards if you're playing Dramatic Reversal, but not Isochron Scepter. That's kind of a really good example of what we're trying to narrate here.
0: Well, and I actually also think here of a challenge that you had in the past, Matt, for the card Cloud Shift, Mm -hmm. which can blink a permanent, and then it returns it under your control. And this was a card that you posited that, like, I think that we've got so many other blink spells that target all of your stuff, or that, like Ephemerate, for example, comes back for another round next turn, that this particular card has kind of outlived its welcome. There is a detail that is different about Cloudshift, where it returns the card under your control as opposed to its owner's control, which is a difference. Like if you temporarily gained control of someone else's thing, you would be able to permanently take that creature by blinking it with the Cloud Shift. But is that value as good as the value you'd get from playing an ephemerate that will blink a thing twice for you for free? Like, how many of those temporarily steal effects are you playing in the blink decks like you were challenging? I don't think there's very many. And trying to find that corner case wouldn't be enough to justify me keeping that in the cards that I'm considering when I'm trying to slim down to 100.
1: Yeah, in in the typical blink deck, um, you'll notice they're running exactly one on average Uh, Blink or or mind control type of effect, which is agent of treachery, which is all well and good But that's also like you you need specifically one card That is only being played in maybe 30% of other decks. So like well an agent of treachery is already a permanent steal. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so like there's corner case scenarios and so um, and I've done this too Like I, I ended up arguing against myself when I was trying to defend a card that I'd already put in a deck And when I took a step back and said Well, this is only really good because I need exactly one other card and I'm not playing any tutors, so why why am I playing this card again? Because I have to have this other very specific card in there, and if that's the case, then that's probably not a card that you need to be playing if you have to defend it against yourself.
0: <laughs> I, I would love to just see two Matt Morgans arguing over a pile of 100. Oh, I've cards.
1: I've spent many time in a dark bar in the corner just arguing against <laughs> myself. It look like Robert De Niro just having like a monologue. Just you
0: know, oh, that's a good point. No. Yeah. Oh, man. So yeah, no, the cloud shift example is one that's been on my mind, which is why I wanted to get to this category, especially. Uh, but let's move on to another one. This one, actually, I'll, I'll take the lead on it again, because it might be more of a me thing than it is for you guys. Um, but I sort very strictly i use strict categories so when i've got a pile of 103 cards in front of me i will be like all right where are these all of these cards going like yes there's your ramp and your removal type of categories but do i have like a specific type of protection category or do i have a this is a reanimation spells type of category i'm very very strict when i'm sorting out those cards into their different categories so that when a card doesn't fit cleanly into any one of those categories I'm like, hmm, this seems like an odd man out and that might be a clue to me that it doesn't necessarily mesh with what the rest of the deck is up to. Dana, is this an experience that you have too or is this category thing not a hugely helpful piece for you?
2: It is and this is such an easy thing to do. If if you just get like a giant piece of cork board and like a hundred different push pins and a bunch of string, you can put together your own murder board to analyze this in, oh, you know, goodness. two to three hours tops and really get a good breakdown of what the categories are.
0: Dana. Um, no, uh, we don't, that's not what I'm talking about. Your, your legendary murder boards pinned up on the wall, red string attaching between all of those cards. That's not quite what I'm talking about. Although I appreciate your dedication to the craft, man. No, I, I,
2: I um, <laughs> Seriously though, I, I do know what you mean. Being able to eyeball that and get on and just look and, and carefully be like, how many different ways can I remove an enchantment? Uh, how many different ways can I guarantee I'm gonna come out ahead card draw? Well, what ways do I have to ramp in this deck? And and you might find yourself like, oh man, I, I put 13 pieces of ramp in this deck without really realizing it and my commander costs three cmc i i I can very easily get away with pulling a a couple of these mana rocks out and just not hurt how all this deck plays like breaking stuff down does oftentimes not only draw attention to what you're missing but like what you might have too much of
0: and especially like if i end up with a category where there's only two cards in that category then i'm like well it's not one odd man out But there are two odd men out. And like, it kind of also forces me to be honest with how am I actually playing these cards? Do they really fit into a different category? Should I have these two cards in here if they don't fit anywhere? Like, it forces me to acknowledge, am I using this counterspell as removal or as protection? Am I using this let's say berserk as like am I being proactive with this or am I trying to be political with it and that can be another way to kind of figure out the identity of the deck while you're sorting while also potentially finding any stragglers
1: see I'm just sitting over here like a Timmy like you guys are talking about all these categories and <laughs> I, I and like not, not to say I don't like okay I need some ramp spells I need some draw spells uh, but then I just have two categories theme and off theme and that's about it um but like, I mean, that just works for me. You guys think about it way more than I do, uh, which is cool. I mean, I start with like 98 cards. And I have to add cards to a deck, whereas you guys have to cut the 25. So it's cool. It's cool. It,
0: it, <laughs> I, I don't understand that at all, man. I've never been in the position where
1: hmm, I don't have enough cards yes. in the deck. That's just never, happened.
2: literally, not one time has that ever happened to me.
1: You guys like, are just trying too hard. Just
0: <laughs> no, no, no. We 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 want to. We just moderation, we have to cover all my the friends. Bases. Moderation. <laughs> all right matt take us to our next tip what is another thing that can be helpful when trying to slim down or i guess in your case build up to those 100 (laughs) cards
1: um well i i did mention on my themes that i that i happen to have i have the theme and off theme well off theme cards a lot of times i have a lot of pet cards in that in those piles of of that category um and a lot of times, man, that maybe they're just not that good. I've mentioned many times uh, Rishkar's Expertise. Like, that goes into every green deck that I have just because it's one of my favorite cards. Um, is it necessarily great in a lot of them? Not really. No. There's probably better options for probably most of the decks at this point. But I, I it, don't know. That's a primo draw spell. It is a day. primo draw spell. But also, like, if you're like the, at best drawing like three threes, um, maybe it's not the best because like I'm playing a lot of smaller creatures. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, just being honest, you know, about those pet cards that are in the deck. Like, is this card something that I think is going to be good or is it something that I'm putting in there just because I want to put it in there?
2: Yeah, this, this is one thing that I, I will, I don't know if pushback is the right word, but one thing I do try to do is have at least one kind of. Oddball, truly strange or truly lesser played pet card in most of my decks. And as a result of that, actually, when I'm making cuts, I do tend to mark that as something that won't be pulled under any circumstance. Um, like, you know, I, I've decided to run, I recently built a jury master of the review deck and I, I have for many, many years been, been trying to find like a deck for sigil of distinction, which is an old Alara artifact that comes into play. It's X to cast. You put counters on it and the creature gets plus X, plus X based on how much mana you spent. To to cast it, um, Dana. We're not, not at challenge the
0: stats yet, but keep on
2: finding these underplayed gems. I love it. Well, so so this is a card that I, that I do like, and I and I've never found a deck for it. So when I built jury, I'm like, this works here well enough. It's going in the deck no matter what. Like that's just not coming out at any point in time. So that's one of the things that I, I do. Um, I, I know what you mean, but I also like sometimes decide that I just want to run this card no matter what. So it's not coming out.
0: I, I think here it isn't like. To be critical of pet cards, I think the lesson is to be honest about your pet cards. Are you keeping this in the deck for sure because it is a pet card that brings you joy? That's awesome. Great, big, valid reason to use those cards in your EDH decks. But also be honest, like, are those the optimal cards to play? No, not necessarily, which can then help realign what the rest of the goal of the deck is so that then you can find something else to take out instead. Because if you're not trying to optimize, then the cards that are going a little bit too optimal, then maybe those are the suspects that you'll take out of the list instead so that you can get to those final 100. But like in in my experience, I'm going to be honest with you, Dana, it tends to be the reverse where I try to put Splendid Reclamation into every single deck that I have that contains green. It's the spell that brings all of your lands out of the graveyard into play tapped i try to put this into decks like Virtus and gorm i don't lose lands in that deck i don't even mill myself in that deck but it's <laughs> sure. like literally one of my favorite spells that has ever been printed so i keep on putting it into every list whenever i start brewing anything that contains green and it does not belong and i have to be honest with myself about that because it always manages to get to like slot number 105 and i'm like Dang it! I love this card, but I'm not actually doing anything with lands for this deck, so it needs to leave. Like, so there's the honesty goes both ways. Is all I'm saying
1: for sure. Yeah, the the amount of pet cards is a really good way to kind of guide you know how powerful or tuned you want to make a deck. Like, if you're allowing yourself to keep more pet cards in there, it's probably not going to be as powerful. And just being honest and being aware of that. Like, if you find yourself cutting all your pet cards. That probably means you're trying to lean into maybe a more powerful type of deck. And there's nothing wrong with either of those directions at all. It's just something to be aware of. And, and, you know, like we keep saying, be honest with yourself about like, are you trying to make a powerful deck? Then maybe you need to cut out some of those pet cards.
0: Right. And if you want to go more on the these are cards that spark joy for me, then that's a direction to go. And that can help guide those other cuts. It's absolutely huge. Now, Dana, I heard you earlier bring up this artifact that the rest of us have not heard of before. It, it sounds like you were maybe a little bit eager to get to challenging the stats. Is that what I was potentially hearing? I am always eager to challenge some stats, Joey. Then let's do it. It's one of our favorite segments here on the show because there's so much data on Idiotrek, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think the cards see too much play or too little play. So we love to challenge those statistics.
1: And don't forget the official sponsor, of challenge stats is altersleeves.com so you can head over to altersleevescom EDH Retcast, um, which will let them know that we sent you but it's a great way to get all sorts of alternate extended borders um, you want to check out some you know possibly some alters from a, an artist that you like. Um, Alter Sleeves is an awesome way to do that, um, but you can also change it up. Say you have a couple arts that you like you want to swap back and forth between, you're able to do so. You have all sorts of different artists. And like I said, you get to support the podcast directly. Um, so head over to altersleeves.com slash EHRETCast uh, for just all your awesome Alter Sleeve needs. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Dana, again, it sounded like you were really eager to get to challenge the stats. Yeah. am. Which, which means we're going to make you wait to go last. So, oh, Matt, how about you start geez. us off this week?
1: <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, I can. I, I can take that from Dana since uh, that's, that's <laughs> what we're doing these days. Uh, so a card that I want to challenge is going to be Pattern of Rebirth. This is a card that... Uh, we, we've we've talked about how great this card is several times on the podcast uh it's great it does all sorts of really cool things pattern of rebirth is an enchantment for three and a green that enchants a creature and says when an enchanted creature dies that creature's controller may search their library for a creature card put that card onto the battlefield and then shuffle their library so pattern of rebirth is played in about 4,800 decks currently which is A fair number, you know, it's a little specific maybe, but a whole strategy that I really like this in, that I don't see it even on the page at all, is the Enchantress themes. Um, This is a decks that are all about casting enchantments, having them enter the battlefield, getting rewards for that. Um, And I think this is just such a great card because A... Enchantress decks are all about finding an engine card, whether it's, you know, and Enchantress to make sure you're drawing lots of cards, whether it's Nylia's Colossus to make big, massive beaters and do some crazy damage. They're all about getting one card in there and just really taking over the game from there. Um, I really think that if you have a Mana Dork out there, which the typical Enchantress deck is playing a few Mana Dorks, maybe like your Llanowar Elves or your Ignoble Hierarchs, well, you, you're able to use them as a chump blocker get them off, and then you tutor up and put onto the battlefield some massive, powerful engine card. I just think this is great. And even if you're just casting it, you know, it's still feeding into what you're already wanting to do, which is casting a lot of enchantments. Um, Like I said, Pattern of Rebirth is not showing up on the page at all. It is a little different. It's a little off from maybe um, what you would typically be wanting to do in the typical enchantress deck. But if you're kind of dependent on a certain creature to have maybe you're you're your test champion you really need that on the battlefield this is a great way to tutor up and turn a mana dork or some just expendable creature and turn into something that's going to win you the game
0: such a good enchantment i remember it used to be very expensive but it got some like ultimate masters reprinting that made it a lot cheaper to get a hold of maybe it's gone back up in the time since but if it has it's because it's a really good card
1: it's a crazy powerful card. I, I, I wanted to put this in all, so many more decks and they just, it gets cut. But if you need an extra enchantment to be casting, this is a really, really good option.
0: Nice. I'm going to move to my challenge now, and mine is the listener-submitted challenge for the week from our patron JJ Mickey, who's got a really clever challenge here for the card Augmenter Pugilist, or more specifically, the back half of it, Echoing Equation, which I got to fully admit is a card that I think just completely passed me by. On the back half of this technically Simic uh, card, it's a troll on one side, but it's this cool spell on the other a five mana blue sorcery that says choose target creature you control each other creature you control becomes a copy of it until end of turn, except that those creatures aren't legendary if the chosen creature is legendary. So all of your creatures become a copy of one specific creature. And what J.J. Mickey wants to challenge this in is for cards like Kumena, the Tyrant of Araska, the merfolk tribal commander, who puts a whole bunch of merfolk and sometimes merfolk tokens onto the board. And merfolk is really famous for having those things like Lord of Atlantis that pump up all of your other merfolk. So there, it's a very, very powerful. Powerful spell to use to turn all of your creatures into a single merfolk lord, where each one of them is pumping each of the other ones up. You kind of make a one sided coat of arms for this deck this is a really clever spell because it's the spell is on the back half of this card i feel like i completely overlooked it and maybe some listeners out there have as well this card isn't showing up in many of those decks at all but it's a really clever card definitely try out in your simic decks but also as jj recommends here for kumena as well because this thing can do some really nasty nasty work
2: okay is it my turn here finally i've listened to you all talk for (laughs) way too long okay all right
0: um, oh, okay, fine. Yes, Dana, we'll let you go. Oh, dang it.
2: <laughs> so so my challenge of sets was inspired by a new card from Midnight Hunt called Mask of Grizzlebrand um, that I'm definitely going to run in at least one deck. Uh, when a creature dies, you may pay X life or X its power and you draw X cards and it has lifelink and flying. It's a neat little uh, Grizzlebrand tribute piece of equipment that's definitely going to see play from the new set um, but it reminds me of an older card that's only in 546 decks and that's fruit of the first tree from way back in khan's block um, fruit of the first tree is an enchantment three and a green for an aura um, when enchanted creature dies you gain x life and draw x cards where x is its toughness Auras aren't necessarily great. And I, I think part of the reason people don't run this card in particular is because it's really easy to get two for one if somebody has, you know, a path to exile spell or a of of plowshares. And I think people have tended to run this with the hopes they would draw when something incidentally dies and then they get burned by, you know, a, a bounce spell or a exile or something that doesn't trigger it. Um, I think it should be in more than 500 decks though. Um, because if you use it correctly, which I think is to use it and then immediately sacrifice the thing you hit with it, it's way stronger. Life's Legacy is a sorcery that does a similar thing. It doesn't gain you life, it just draws you cards. Um, That's in 5,000 decks, and, and it's a little bit cheaper to cast, but it's also not recurrable in, say, a Muldrotha deck, where you're always sacrificing creatures anyway. Um of the First Tree, I think, is a really neat, reusable draw spell in in green decks that have the ability to reuse enchantments. And it can be an absolute blowout in the right situation if you're flinging things, like in my deck, for example. And I think it definitely should see more play than just 500 decks
0: if you play it in a way that that protects you from getting burned. That is really savvy. And frankly, I know the deck you're talking about, your Crush the Blood-Braided deck, where, like, frankly, the danger, honestly, Dana, that you might run into there is that when you're flinging something, it's usually for, like, 80 damage because you've gotten that many plus one counters onto your thing. So you, personally, might need to be a little careful that Fruit of the First Tree doesn't kill you when you draw too many cards off of it. It isn't a May effect,
2: and I, yes, I have, in fact killed myself with this card at least one time by not paying attention to (laughs) the size of the creature and the size of my library.
0: But I think that's just a testament to like how good this effect is. That's
2: not a bad thing. If, if, If a card has drawn you so many cards, you've died. That's... Exactly. You just need to pay more attention but it's a really good car.
0: yeah i i totally love it oh man so okay i'm glad that we got to the challenges dana i'm sure that you're satisfied but now let's get back to the rest of the ah, show thank how does you that sound? how does that sound is it good uh, i i guess i can allow it all right sweet deal matt take us to our next tip because again we are talking about how to slim down those last few cuts what's another thing that can be helpful when you're trying to take it from like 104 cards 103 cards 102 cards 101 cards back to
1: finally we're at 100 what's our next tip Oh, I I thought we were doing my thing where we go from ninety eight to ninety nine to one hundred. <laughs> nope, nope. Oh, I am. Okay. I would like to be okay. excused from okay. this
0: narrative. Let's let's keep going.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, so one one category of cards that we want to make sure we're looking out for is non bows that fall in you know cards that go against the main strategy of what you're trying to do. If you're trying to build a plus one plus one counter deck, um, chances are you don't want to have solemnity in there just because your friend has <laughs> a planeswalker super friends deck. Um, chances are that's not going to go well for you more often than it's not. Gonna go well for your friends so um look for some nonvos look for some anti-synergy type of cards that you have going on and maybe consider those as a strong candidate to be cut because if they're only taking away from your own strategy then why are you really playing them
0: yeah those anti-synergies that can sometimes cause your deck to stumble a really classic example i think of is cascade decks that they want to cascade into a bunch of cards and then they've got a couple of counter spells on their deck so when they cascade into a spell they hit their own counter spell and it's like oh the cascade really just completely whiffed that is the type of thing that during deck construction you might be able to spot to be like hmm maybe i don't need these types of counterspells to be here because it kind of contradicts my Cascadey stuff that i'm actually trying to achieve
2: the the kind of classic example of this for me and and i've been playing long enough that i i do tend to catch it before we get to this point but um lightning greaves um are are you going to need to target your own commander very frequently um and or do you have enough other creatures in the deck to move Lightning Greaves somewhere else if you do need to target your commander? Right. Um And, you know, I, I, like I said, I've been doing this long enough that I can pay attention to that. I, I know to look for it immediately. Um, but you need to look for it because, like, it's a thing where I, I definitely have had Greaves in a deck and got down to that 105 cards and then be like, oh, I... Okay, lightning grease is going to be a problem in these six scenarios, and that's more scenarios than I'm comfortable with. So I'm going to switch it to Swiftfoot boots or something, or, or, or another
0: alternative, um, because it's just going to burn me too frequently for me to be comfortable with uh, an example for me another personal pet card actually is Mazerek crawl death priest where whenever people sacrifice stuff you get plus encounters on all of your creatures and i keep trying to force that into my Marin deck because i'm sacrificing stuff all over the place this sounds like another cool way to do things but The thing that I always forget and that whenever I'm like trying to rebuild that and like go back up to it, do I want to switch things up? The thing that I always come across is that Mazurek's plus one counters contradict any of the undying cards that I would try to play because undying brings your creatures back, but only if they have no plus one counters on them at the time that they die. So those cards are kind of conflicting with each other. And that does mean like, ah, dang. I've probably only got room for one of these things and I need to pick which one. And that helps me figure out, okay, this will be the card that I take out to go from 101 cards in this pile, finally, to an actual 100.
2: Well, a- another good thing to look for here when you're making cuts is to just take a second look at the kind of quote unquote staples that people tend to put in a lot of different decks and decide if those are something you really want to be running anyway in this particular list. Um, this is a little bit like part of that pet card we think thing we talked about where, you know, card's expertise is good in a lot of green decks, despite it just being a pet card to mats, but um, <laughs> like, are you running in your green deck because you're playing green, and then do you really need to look and see, is this going to actually pay off in this deck, or is it filled with
0: 1-1 elves that are probably not going to give me the bang for my buck that I want? Uh, I mean, that I do actually have a deck where cards would be a bad card. I know that that's hard to believe for a lot of people, but my Virtus and Gorm deck, I've got a 1-1 and a 2-7 in my command zones, and then the rest of the deck contains, I think there's maybe a 3-3? Three three? Like, that wouldn't be a good card for that deck, and automatically slamming wish cards into the pile is totally a thing that i did when i was building stuff up and then i realized oh the actual rest of the deck doesn't support this thing so yeah those are the tiny things where the staples can really stick out to you but sometimes the staples aren't the right choice well i I think we talked about it in the
2: cards we we don't play thing um mirage mirror is a fantastic card like there are very few situations where power wise mirage mirror isn't useful in your deck it goes everywhere Always does a useful thing. It's it's amazing. Um, but it's also kind of an easy cut for that reason, too. Like when I'm down to the end and I'm like, I don't know what this last one card to cut is. Things like Mirage Mirror or Sensei's Divining Top or or Scroll Rack, if they're not an integral part of some specific strategy in that deck, if you're just running them because they're universally good and they are definitely universally good, that does, at least for me, kind of make for an easy cut because you're like, well, I've I've played this card a gazillion times as it is. It's not doing anything super interesting in my deck. I'm just going to pull it out.
1: Well, and another thing that we've kind of talked about several times in the podcast, too, is, yes, like Wrath of God is a fantastic board wipe. It's kind of the the default go-to most powerful. It's four mana destroys all the creatures, can't be regenerated. Great, great effect. Um, but we've also talked about if you go into the five mana wrath categories, if you question like, yes, wrath of God is the best, but are there some other benefits that I can be getting? If I look outside that immediate staple, um, maybe you want to look at some, some other ways to you know draw cards. Uh, maybe your life total is kind of precarious. So you can't play every single sign in blood nights, whisper, uh, read the bones type of draw spell and you need to look into some other types of things that you can be doing. Looking outside the staples maybe sometimes is a way to find some of those hidden gems. Maybe you're, you're restricted on budget. You know, that's a very real thing that a lot of people have. So you can't afford to have Cyclonic Rift in every single deck. Um, maybe you want to look outside that. Maybe you find Whelming Wave that way. And that's another way to just bounce a whole bunch of creatures. Um, there's all sorts of different, you know, situations and scenarios where people are finding some very, very powerful cards because they're looking outside of those staples type of effects
0: hmm I, I feel like some of the biggest blowouts that I've ever seen have come from, like you mentioned, those alternate versions of Wrath. Instead of playing the typical, like, oh, here's the Wrath of God and the Damnation, someone might play, like, it's like end the sands or something like that which destroys all creatures and anything that was attached to a creature and it's just like oh they didn't have any equipment in their deck they opted for this very unusual one and then that got rid of me and my lightning griefs how dare they like there are sometimes those extra unique effects that you can locate by being a bit more discerning and going outside of that box as you said
1: yeah I had a friend who they had a dragon tribal deck and they were kind of upset because damnation was an expensive card and it still isn't very cheap Um, but I looked at him and was kind of like well why don't you just play crux of Fate. like it's one more right. mana but if you're playing dragon tribal just just it's just better like pay one more mana and you get to save all of your own creatures that just seems like a pretty swell deal to me um and they looked at like oh yeah i'm gonna save Thirty nine dollars and just play Crux of Fate instead, and so it's like it's great. Like sometimes you're able to find those types of swaps that maybe you're you're giving up like a mana or two, but like the upside that you're getting out of these is so much higher than what you would be getting otherwise. Mm
0: -hmm. There's another example that comes to my mind here too when we're talking about second guessing the staples. I built a Karazikar the Eye Tyrant recently who goads your opponent's creatures whenever you attack them, and I was all set out with a bunch of the traditional mana rocks that you would usually expect to see in a deck like that. And then I started realizing, wait... Maybe I can start cutting some of those out because what I'll actually want are these other mana rocks like Rakdos Kirun that can animate themselves into creatures in case I want to play Karazakar, animate just a tiny little 3-1 little mana rock here and attack someone to goad their creature. That was a synergy that I was only able to find by second-guessing those staples. So that cut out a bunch of the cards out of my considerations list so that I could better tune the stuff that I was doing to that deck. And that really helped me along with the cutting process. So I totally love this idea of making sure that just because it is a staple doesn't mean that we always treat it like it's going to be good in every deck. We don't just want to find cards that are good in every deck. We want to find cards that are good in our specific decks. All right, Matt, this next point that we're getting to is I know another very dear point for you. Tell us about advanced filters.
1: Oh, I, I, how much time you got? We can fill a whole episode of me <laughs> talking about advanced filters. Um, this is the tool that I, this is my default answer. Whenever somebody asks, Matt, how, how can I use EDH Rec better as a, as a deck building tool? Learn Advanced Filters. It is my favorite, far and away. I use it more than any other aspect of the website. It's just so great. It's a good way to kind of find people that are thinking on the same wavelength as you. Uh, Maybe you have certain synergies you wanna really dial in on. But man, Advanced Filters just helps me also make cuts to the deck. So just as Mm -hmm. importantly as what cards are people playing with, you know, in weatherlight Duelist decks with um, Throne of the God Pharaoh. But what are they not playing? That's another thing that I always want to consider is, you know, are they really playing this random card that I'm thinking about? And if not, then maybe it's something that maybe I don't really want to include. Um, So just as much as it's helping me find cards that I do want to play, Advanced Filters helps me choose what cuts to make as well.
0: Right, you can go and search for merry decks that only include that Throne of the God Pharaoh so that it slims down to see like-minded results. Or you can be like, well, I know that I'm definitely not playing X, Y, Z, and Sigma and other cards here, so I'll advance filters to not show me data from decks that do include those cards because I already know that's not a strategy I want to go down. And that can help you find other players who think the same way that you do, and if they're not including certain cards in their deck, maybe there's a reason for that because of something that they discovered, so you can find more that way. Although... I feel like I can hear this response whirring in Dana's brain. Dana, I feel like I know what your response is going to be here. You'll say, this is just a recipe to go from 104 cards in your list to 108 cards yeah, in your
2: list. I mean, it definitely does for me sometimes. That's where I get into trouble when I, I've just been using like my memory to remember what cards I want to run in a deck. And at the last <laughs> minute, I go... I should check EDH racks and, you know, <laughs> I write for EDH rack. And I go look and I mi- I find those like six good cards I missed. And that's when I just pour more gin. <laughs>
0: yeah so i do kind of feel that but matt i still love the tip that like advanced filters can help you find other things where other players have done a similar thing to you and here are some of the cuts that they've made because these cards that are still in your list are really far down on the page and that might help you find some of those things to really get rid of and so i totally agree with you matt i think it is also a very valuable tool
1: well thank you joy i'm glad that you also uh also appreciate the uh, the knowledge bombs that I'm dropping here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even though Dana doesn't, how very dare he. Uh, okay, so Dana, maybe here's a redeeming moment for you. What's another tip that instead of the advanced filters that maybe you would use that does successfully help you cut down?
2: Uh, play test, play test, play test, just play test. Um, and, you know, that, that sounds like the kind of thing you do when you are add 100 cards. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, you now, yes, you can do it that way. You can like just cut out a couple cards to get to a hundred and deal a bunch of sample hands out and goldfish things either with the actual cards you have or on a deck builder site that actually has a goldfishing feature. Um, Architect and Moxfield both do. So you have the option to do it digitally as well. But like, there's just a lot of things you don't see in a deck. Both in terms of how bad a card might be or how good it might be until you get those reps in and you don't have to do it in a real game. Um, that's a better experience, but like there's a lot to be learned from just playing out an opening hand and figuring out what you would do in the first two turns. You oftentimes can just find things that like don't work in your deck and you decide, oh, well, this is an easy cut that I didn't realize was going to be an easy cut because you've just mm-hmm. then noticed some lack of synergy or a problem with it once you've actually played out those opening hands.
0: The, the, the experience that you get when you draw a random seven and you're like, huh, I'm not excited to see that card in my hand. Maybe I should cut that card. Like, that is a thing that is very valuable for me. Even if I've got a pile of 100 and there aren't any lands in it yet, I will still draw a 7 and then pretend that I can. any card mm. can be a land. And then I'll just be like, all right, what cards am I routinely trying to keep in my hand? And what cards am I happy to use as a land because they don't seem to be working for the way that I'm gold fishing?" And that can be a clue that, hmm... Those might be some of the cards that I need to get rid of just by like actually simulating those cards being in my hand. It makes me understand better how they will actually play out before I even sit down at a pod with a whole bunch of other players. Matt, is this something you do as well?
1: Um, I do it every now and then just kind of get a rough feel for the deck. I never do it without lands. Uh, That's just point number one. I always start with 37 lands, just period, no matter what the deck is, because I don't want to put myself in a situation where like you are, where I'm making 37 cuts or 35 cuts or whatever. Like, that just seems like, man, that, that, that's like asking me to like put, I, I, I don't even know, like something very, very painful and, and tragic that would be having to be taken away from me. Um, so I always start with the lands in the deck. Um, that's just kind of a gotcha. non-negotiable for me because that just saves me difficult cuts down the road.
2: I, I am with Matt there. I, I do always like literally the first thing I do in a deck is put the land base in. Because um, it's because it's an easy thing to do. Then I don't have to worry about it later on. I, I definitely tweak it later on. But yeah, when I'm doing this gold fishing thing, I am always at my roughly the land count. I I think I want to start at the very least, just so I can get the feel for it. You know, what do I have for a turn one play, a turn two play, whatever. Um, and the other reason is that also actually gives you a, a sense of your your mana pip count as well, like. It's one thing to look at a deck and, and feel like I need more red than I need green because of the amount of the casting costs. Things tend to play differently sometimes when you actually deal a handout and you realize, oh, I'm doing a lot of these, you know, red things at instant speed on someone else's turn. So I need to have more red available on my turn to actually do the main phase things I want. Like what sometimes it just works out in a weird way and you have to get a feel right. for it via gold fishing.
0: Right, all my blue spells in the stack only have one yep. pip like an SIOR, but all of my white spells have three pips like true conviction. Exactly. Like yeah, that is the kind of thing that an actual rep can help you discover for sure. I totally get it. What
1: well, one, um, one thing that kind of feeds from this this point that we're talking about that I do all the time is keep those cards that you cut. Like those last like 5 yes. or 6 cards, keep a maybe board together because that ugh, I the, one of the worst things ever is cutting a card then coming back to it and you want to put it back in there, but you don't know where you put it. Um, so just keep a maybe board and keep those those last few cards that you want to play around with. Maybe you're not sure if you want this to be the cut or not. Keep those cards around. Keep them handy so you can play play a game. And immediately after, you can put those in and make those swaps to try them in the very next game. That way you know exactly what cards you're considering. Uh, keeps them around. It's, it's just something so, so handy. And two, it's just you, maybe you want to change up the deck a little bit. Having you know a few extra cards there. Just to swap around, just in case you're you're feeling a little spunky, or maybe you want to take it a little easier. That's something you're able to do. So keeping a maybe board is something that's so so valuable, especially when you're in the, that play testing phase.
0: It 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 those cards will still be there if I cut them. Like it's cool, Matt. I love this point because I have found other synergies emerge that I wanted to replace other cards in my deck with. I think of when the card author of shadows came out, that was like a turning point for my Marin deck. I know that sounds dramatic, but like it sincerely was author of shadows is a five mana black creature that enters the battlefield and exiles all of your opponent's graveyards, and then allows you to like take a card from among those that you can cast a little bit later. And, I was like, oh, dang, this is perfect for me because in my Maron deck, I love playing Living Death. Living Death brings all of everyone's dead creatures back into play. That's It's so good because I can make sure that no one else has a graveyard and only I get a graveyard. And having those like available to me and keeping some of these cards just around in the maybe board was so useful for me because i then was able to see ha huh, there's an bow with the sepulchral primordial that i'm running and it was just such an easy swap to make but it was only because i had it so easily on hand that i could even make those connections like stuff shifts around so having your maybe board available to you is really really important to see how your deck is growing up yeah it's
2: it's useful not just for the making cut phase of this but it's useful for these six months down the road or a year down the road portion of this. Right. Um, and one thing I do and I've been doing for a couple years now is I actually keep a log of the changes I make. Like when I pull this card out and put this card in, I actually have okay, a well, note. Yeah, that's about, because you're
0: a crazy person. Yeah, I, right. And I, I right. need that on the record. I mean, listen, listen, I don't know
2: if everyone should do that, but like I do, I make a little little note in the, in the notes field of my deck list online about what I added and what I removed. And then a little field like this is why I pulled it out. This is why I made this change it's it's useful to revisit that. Like, why did I pull this out? That made sense then, but it doesn't maybe make sense now. So maybe I want to revisit that because my deck composition has changed enough where the reason I pulled it in the first place no longer matters.
0: Mm hmm. Right. Like a card like Viridian Revel, for example, which years ago, there weren't a whole lot of artifacts dying all over the place. So it probably wouldn't have drawn you a whole bunch of cards because it only draws you cards when artifacts die. Whereas nowadays, with all the treasure tokens running around, it's huge. And so that's the kind of thing that a maybe board is super useful for because boom, now that synergy things have shifted around and you're able to make huge use of that.
2: Well, a good example of this, Joey, is um, when Solemnity got got released back in Amonkhet block, I had put it in in a, a Sphinx tribal deck, actually, um, and I wound up removing a couple of cards that, that non-bowed with Solemnity. And then, you know, at some point, I took somebody out because I, for whatever reason, I didn't remember what it was, I didn't like some interaction or I just wanted to try something else, and I didn't necessarily put all those cards back in that I took out when I added it. That was a useful thing to revisit, though, at that point. At some point down the road, I, I looked back. I'm like, what did I take out for that? And I did have a log of that. And I was able to look back and be like, okay, well, this card is, without slumbering the deck, it plays much better. So I'm going to rotate it back in. It's, it's, it's just a very useful thing to keep track of. And you don't. If you don't want to log it, like a crazy person, <laughs> the, the, the maybe board is good enough. Like just having the cards there in a list that you can scan with your eyes, be like, oh, that that is a good card. Like just having it there is probably good enough for most people.
0: Matt, have you ever logged the changes? I'm trying to ask this question sincerely, but I can't get through it because I know your answer is no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Actually, you give me not enough credit, friend. Um, I did keep track of the changes. Um, for a couple sets. So back at like Zendikar Rising era um which okay. seems like so long ago but it was only last year. Um I tried keeping up with a changelog and it was just I I just it it wasn't for yeah. me. Like it's it's too much effort that I wanted to put into a hobby um if if you're like Dana <laughs> and have those Char- those Charlie Kelly like you know, murder boards trying to solve conspiracy <laughs> theories and find out where Bigfoot is, it, uh, while tracking all of your deck changes. Man, that that's cool. Like, that's what you want to do. Like, I I get it. Um, it's just too much for me.
0: But I I I I know that I haven't seen the Always Sunny. I don't know it very well, but I do know <laughs> you've that Dana, seen building you've a deck, seen
1: the meme. Yes, uh, that
2: Dana
0: building a deck is the Pepe Sylvia. Joey has Absolutely. even been called out in our YouTube comments for having not it's watched. True. It's always sunny. Listen, I'm sorry. I spend my time building decks and trying to slim. <laughs> all of my time goes to trying to slim down from 103 cards to 100 cards. Dana, that's where all of my time goes because it's very difficult, and I need these tips. Okay, fair so. enough. All right, Matt, bring us home. What is our final piece of advice for ways to cut down to the final 100 cards in your commander deck?
1: Well, the last point that we have is probably also the most fun, Um, and that's just play the deck. Find out what you like, play the deck, make some changes, play the deck, Uh, also play the deck. Um, just yeah, <laughs> but play games with like play games with whatever you're building. Um, you're gonna find out more about how the deck works, what you like, what you don't like, just by simply playing games with it. And that's like why we built the decks to begin with. That's why we have the podcast because we like playing the game. So just go out there and just find some friends, play on spell table, do what you got to do, um, and just yeah, enjoy playing the game make like Dana does and what yoink five cards at
0: random, get down to 100 and then just ship it out there and see how it fares because then you'll actually know more about the cards that stayed and whether you want to try the cards that were cut. Like it'll be a little bit erroneous, but it doesn't have to be perfect right from the get-go. It just doesn't. Um, I wrote an article for
2: Trek a month-ish or so ago called Taking a Deck from Alpha to Revised where I went through the process of me taking a deck when I got it to 100 cards to the changes I then made over the course of I think it was a two-week window. And I made like 20 to 25 changes over the course of two weeks with a brand new deck. Yeah. Um, just because haven't gotten those reps in. And, and a lot of those early cuts were ones I made just to get to 100 because I wanted to get reps in. Um But right. once I got to that point, a lot of times for me, that's when like the real precision brewing takes place, that's when I just get it out there, grind that deck out, and then realize I just need more of this and this thing I cut to get to 100. I need to put it back in, so I'm going to find room for this and that. Like, There's still a lot of work you can do when you get to that point. It's just easier to get to that point so you can really do it correctly, I think. At least it is for me.
0: I I think a big lesson for us here is that it's kind of been a, a mistruth Uh, of the foundations of this episode, maybe that the ending of the deck brewing process is when you cut down to 100, because that's not the end point. It's just not actually playing the deck and learning and growing with it. There are further cuts that will be made past that point. So yeah, very much. <laughs> I, I mean, there, maybe you are someone you as a listener out there, maybe
2: you're someone who can mentally do these those things before you get to 100. I, I'm not someone who can like I, I just have to play it to find what little subtleties I, I, I missed when I was eyeballing it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, definitely for me, I just have to get those reps in to get that those last really to get those last rough edges sanded off for sure.
1: Well, and I, I've seen a lot of people on on Twitter, on social media, saying, you know, I have this deck, but I don't, I don't think it's ready. I don't want to play it yet. Man, just just play it. You're gonna find just out. do. Yeah, just like if people waited till everything was perfect to start doing something, a lot of things would never get started. Um, exactly. Just take it for being imperfect and, and play it. And then tune it. Like it, you can have a deck be done, um, but if you want a deck to be done, then like you, you probably just brew it and you're you're good to go. You don't have to worry about playing it. Um, but it, it's a living thing. Like you can make changes whenever you want to. So just get out there, just play play the deck as imperfect as it is, um, and just keep making it better. It doesn't need to be perfect to, to get shuffled up.
0: Yeah, th- this is I think one of the lessons that I personally need to <laughs> address most is that like those last three cuts are really agonizing. But you know it would save me a lot of time. Is not stressing out about that and just picking three, getting rid of it, and then just like actually sitting down at a table to see how the deck goes. I will learn what I need to get rid of way, way faster. And if it's not perfect out of the gate, that's fine. I will accept several losses so that I can get actual experience and knowledge with what I need to be doing in this deck. So, yeah, Matt, uh, of the points... I think you're totally right that this is the very, very best one and the best way to get actual genuine experience doing the thing.
2: It's also kind of a good lesson for life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had waited to be great at podcasting to start recording shows, I still wouldn't have started yet. Like, like you just have to start doing things sometimes to actually, you know, get the experience to get better at doing them. Um, that applies and, to everything yeah. besides just deck building. I and, mean, and we're and,
0: still waiting for you to get better. Yeah, though. exactly. Right. You, you have a long <laughs> way ahead of you, possibly.
1: Well, I was, I, I was going to be more polite than that, but, but yeah, Dana's <laughs> absolutely true. Like, I mean, I, I enjoy playing League of Legends, and if I waited till I felt super great and powerful at playing any given role or any champion, like, I, I just wouldn't. I'd just be playing norms. But like, just jump into the pool, like, play whatever you want, um, and learn. Like, you don't have to spend all your time in the practice tool and goldfish like we do with our decks. Uh, just jump into a game and just learn. Just, just. Right. Learn by doing.
0: Exactly. The best commander players in the world still learn this way. There's no way that any person ever gets exactly the right 100. I want
1: to see these rankings, Joey, because I don't think they (laughs) exist.
0: I can guarantee you that I'm not on it, but (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I'm just completely agreeing with you. There's no point at which this will ever necessarily be like oh i've definitely got exactly the 100 that i want anytime you build a deck it's always going to need actual repetitions and so just don't stress about those is kind of a weird lesson but it really just genuinely works it is i think the most effective way to actually find out which of these cards are you going to keep and which of these cards can you finally toss out of the consideration so that you've got the deck that you really really love and it can grow up with you this has been such a fun episode you guys but i think we do need to call it to a close so if our listeners would like to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us all matt let's start with you
1: so you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemist55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming games over at twitch.tv slash Um We have guests on every single week. The games are awesome. So make sure you tune in for a super fun time. And how about you, Dana?
2: You can find me on the Twitter at Dana You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for both EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash Recast. And
0: I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on both Facebook and on Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Once again, our thanks go out to the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast, and we want to thank our sponsors TCGplayer and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast for cool, custom EDH Rec sleeves. Listeners, we will be back at you next week with more data and insights, but Until then, remember, EDH, wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot... For the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's
1: mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. only four percent of universities in the u.s are r1 research institutions and temple university is one of them